Hey, it's a great day. It's day five, January 5th. There are two groups of people in this room. Those of you who are still on your diet and those of you who have already given up. It's a good day. <laughs> We're going to have some fun today. The joy of the Lord is our strength, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6. What is our ultimate number one priority in life? As you think about that, what's most important to us? Now, how you answer that question probably depends on where you find yourself in your life stage. But since this is month of the family, I'm going to ask it to parents and grandparents, what is your number one priority as a parent? Before we answer that question, I want to make a disclaimer. If you are single in this room, this is a good month for you. Say, oh, man, they're going to talk about parenting and marriage. Uh, I'm checking out. Or maybe you're going... We don't have kids. Oh, we can check out. No, I think this is exactly the time as we hear God's words as it relates to relationships because the principles I'm going to talk about today, though may directly apply to parenting, it's really about what's going on between you and God today. And so when we get down to the bedrock of what's most important in our passage today in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema we get this proposition. I want to put the proposition on the board. Our number one priority in parenting is this, to help our children move from dependence on us to dependence on God. Our number one goal as a parent is to move our kids from dependence on us to dependence on God as they grow and mature, both physically, socially, and spiritually. Now, this has never been brought out more than I was reminded again when I was babysitting our one-month-old grandson, and we got him for eight days in a row. I do believe that there is a saint in the room, and it's not me. It's her. She's in the front row because my wife carried the burden of that. And I now know, grandparents, why some of you look at us kind of with a smile on your face. You're going to take him for eight days, and he's never been away from his mother? Yeah, you were all looking at me like, you are nuts. Well, no, we were close to being nuts at the end of the eight days, but we made it. Um, just a sidebar. You know the miracle about... Abraham and Sarah, is not that they got pregnant and had the kid at 90. It's the fact that the kid lived beyond that first week of life because they're exhausting. They're, there's no reason. You know, maybe some of you have had kids later in life, but I'm pretty sure if we had kids now, I would be sucking my thumb in a fetal position going, how are we going to survive this? It was a wonderful experience, but exhausting. And so today, I want you to understand something. No matter what you hear today, I want you to hear this primary message. Today is about grace, not guilt. Okay, this is about grace, not guilt. Not woulda, shoulda, couldas, not wish I could measure up, wish I would have done better. But we're going to have some uh, time in the Word to just look at this. And so the bottom line is our kids are totally dependent upon us when they're born. In fact, we're the most dependent uh, people on the planet. Uh, no other animal in the, human, in, the, in the mammal world needs as much nurture and time and with mom and dad. And the bottom line is we get used to that dependence. And so the other thing, just to keep in back our mind, is sometimes our kids are a lot more ready to let go than we are ready to let go. 
And so as we look at this transference process, I'm encouraged by the fact that, parents, you have a major role in the spiritual impact on the lives of your kids, no, regardless of whether they're in Awana or not in Awana, et cetera, et cetera. I see a lot of new faces, and if you don't know, we take some notes, so get those out while I'm talking, and we can kind of look at that together. But where research was done, if what happens uh, if neither mom or dad go to church? Only 6% of kids will as adults. What if it's just mom only going to church? 15% of kids will go to church as an adult. What about if only dad goes to church, not mom? 55% of kids will go to church. And then the, the, the kicker is, what if both mom and dad go to church? 72% of kids will go to church as adults. Now, some of you are like us. You may have had a prodigal where that didn't completely hold true later on in life. But I'm telling you that statistically, you want your kids to follow the Lord. It starts by being in church. By the way, another little thing is the research is telling us that the idea of just having a family meal together increases the chances of kids uh, uh, growing spiritually into adulthood. And then if you have that church attendance, having a meal together regularly, and then praying occasionally... It goes through the roof. And so we're going to look at this priority today. And so the principle from Deuteronomy 6, look at verses 1 and 2. These are commands, decrees of the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing into Jordan. All right? And that your children and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you shall live. Do you realize what we're talking about is a generational thing? We're talking three generations that as we look at God's Word today and we try to apply it, this isn't just for us, not just for our kids, but for our kids' kids. Now, some of you are not in that joyful time of empty nesting and uh, being grandparents. I never thought I'd be bragging like, dude, I'm a grandparent. I rock. But this is the best part of it. And you all, some of you know this. I love that little grandson of mine. I hold him. I hug him. I kiss him. I give him sugar, and my daughter doesn't know. And then I hand him back, and they go home. And he's just like, whoa. There's nothing greater than to see a kid develop, not just physically, but spiritually. So for us, little man's walking. It's so funny. I don't know if he thinks he's King Kong. This is how he walks, you know? And we're saying, man, that's awesome. But I'll tell you what's going to be more awesome is the day when he sits with his mom or dad and he asks Jesus into his heart. There's probably no greater joy than for a parent to be involved in the spiritual transformation of their kids. And so the principle comes from verses 4 and 5. Look at it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Principle, overriding everything. Love God completely. We see that in verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, you see God's supremacy is declared. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Now, why is he making a big deal about the oneness of God or that there is only one God? What was going on in Deuteronomy in Israel in that day? It was a what kind of culture that the Israelites were living in? A what kind of culture? Multi-gods, polytheistic so he's coming right out of the chutes. He's saying, this is different than the Egyptian culture. In fact, you know, the, you know this. The ten plagues were a total in-the-face rebuke to the Egyptians because each one of those represented what? 
an Egyptian god, right? And he's saying, no, that isn't the way it goes down. In fact, what it means is when God is, he's number one, let's, let's try to define it every different way. He's no equal. There's no comparison. There one's, there's no one like him. He is sovereign. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. There's a no, not a close second. He is the one and only. However you want to say it, God has no competition. He is supreme. So my question for you is then, what competes in our lives for the supremacy of God in our lives? And I want to suggest to you that for most of you, it's not those evil, dastardly things that we make the big list of, smoking and chewing and going with the girls who do kind of thing. You know, that's just not really what's competing for us. I think the things that compete for God's supremacy in our lives are good things. The good things in life are the enemies of the best things. Now, I, we may have done this before, but it's a good reminder. What are those good things that kind of compete for our attention? And since, you know, we're still on vacation, but think in terms of audience participation, every answer you give me will begin with the letter F. Good things that compete for God's supremacy in your life. First one is food, of course. Food. Food competes. What else? Food and fun. Party girl. All right. Food and fun. What else? Females. A true answer given by a man. Females. Food, fun, females. What else? Family, of course. Food, family, fun, and females. What else? Football, of course. Of course. Many of you are DVRing a certain game right now. All right, so we got food, family, fun, females, and football. Finances, right. Fellowship. What? Did he say Play-Doh? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, so food, family, fun, fellowship, food, football for the soccer players. Football. For the college slacker. Foosball. Um, so, and no one's mentioned Facebook, um, but... There are plenty of things, plenty of things that compete for our attention. Now, none of those in and of themselves are bad. None of it's bad. But God says, the Lord our God is one. Dobson said it this way, too, men, too many men or women climb the ladder of success only to find that it's leaning against the wrong wall. And so God's supremacy is declared. Secondly, God's love is demanded. Look at verse 5. And you shall love the Lord your God. How do you love him? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, do you ever remember in the New Testament, it, it's a little different. It's your heart, soul, mind. And so if you compare Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself, um, go to Mark twelve thirty, and that's where you get all four of them, heart, Soul, might, and mind from Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus is number one. So circle that all. He wants all of our hearts, not part of it, not partial allegiance, not when it's convenient, not just a Sunday-only faith. He wants the whole enchilada. You see, the Christian life is not like a TV dinner. Oh, I'll give him this part of my life. A Christian life is a chicken pot pie, friends. It's the whole thing. It's all mixed in together. He wants all of you in every aspect of your life. And the problem is, I think for us, 
we inoculate our kids with spiritual truth sometimes. Now, you know what an inoculation is. You go get your flu shot, right? How many have had your flu shot? Okay. So the rest of you are unhealthy. We're all, no, I haven't got one either. But the bottom line is they give you a little bit of the virus. They give you a little of the contagion. Gives you a little bit of the flu. But it, it makes you ultimately immune to the whole thing. And friends, sometimes we do that with our kids. When we give them a little bit of Jesus but not the whole enchilada. We make things more important. We blow things out of proportion. We make certain things, this is what Christianity is about, when really it's not the whole enchilada. And so we inoculate them against the truth. We expose them to God for a little bit, but really they have no passion for who God is. Now here's the deal. How does that happen? How, I mean, we're well-intentioned people. Why would we ever want to do something that gives our ta- kids a taste of truth but then ultimately inoculates them from wanting all of Jesus? I want to suggest there are some ways that happens when we major on the minors. Now, it's not a huge deal in church today because everybody sits here pretty comfortably and what you wear is what you wear. I remember a day when I was growing up that you had to wear a certain kind of clothing in church because it was disrespectful if you didn't. Or maybe there was certain behaviors that you were involved in and, and maybe you were kind of judged because you were a smoker, say, for instance. Smokers can't come to church. It's kind of a sad deal. My dad came to faith in Christ later in life. He was a smoker all of his life. He went to his church, he was excited, and um, he was told he couldn't sing in the choir because he was a smoker. Now, smoking's bad for you. Being overweight's bad for you. Being addicted to sugar's bad for you. There's lots of things that are bad for you. But a smoker couldn't smoke in the choir, but someone who was a glutton could. Do you see that hypocrisy? And so young people see why we value certain things and judge other things, and it was a huge turnoff. And my, unfortunately, my dad took a long time for him to recover and say, hey, maybe I should try Jesus and not worry about what the church says about this, that, or the other thing. The funny thing is he got involved with a men's group. About half of them smoked cigars on the golf course. And he thought, what's up with that? <laughs> Apparently they can smoke on the golf course, but they can't be in the choir. So that was just one crazy thing from my childhood that I remember, and I kind of marked it like, wow, that... That, that kind of separated people. Some people today think that they have to be at church but to impress people about, look at, look, look at, I'm here. And that's not at all what we're trying to do. We're saying, love God wholeheartedly. Give Him your whole heart. So what keeps us from doing that? I want to suggest three things. First is, is busyness. Sometimes we want to give God everything, we want to be involved, but we are so busy just running around with our heads cut off. And if the more kids you have, you're probably driving, I mean, taxi driver is number one job of mom, right? Think about this question when you're asked, hey, how's it going? How about 90% of the time, at least when I ask, how's it going? I get an answer that involves, I'm so busy at work, or I'm so busy at this. And busyness seems to be the mantra of our lives, and that busyness kind of leads us to this next thing, which is just complete fatigue. Just this bone-crushing fatigue is the second reason why sometimes we can't be yielded to God because we're just exhausted all the time. 
Let's, conf- let's not confuse activity with accomplishment, friends. We can be busy doing a lot of good stuff, but that's no substitute to that alone time. I was so glad today, Pastor Scott, we just got to sit and think and reflect and take it all in during communion. The third is wrong priorities. Now, I'm not telling you what your priorities is. I just know that the number one is that God's got to be central to my experience. But I do know this, that sometimes we're so busy doing all these good activities, all of a sudden we wake up one day and I haven't been in church in six weeks. Now, I never really had that opportunity because when you're a pastor, you kind of have to show up to work, right? (laughs) But I know, and you go, oh, no, it's coming. He just stepped around the podium. He's going to the front to meddle. I just want to lay it out here, friends. Look at, I know sports are important. I, I get it. I had a kid who played varsity football. We wrestled with this whole Sunday tournament thing. We played in five different states. And I am not guilt tripping you, but I can tell you for a fact, when it's all said and done, less than 0.0001% of your kids are going to get a D1 scholarship. And you're spending hours on soccer fields, baseball fields, and Take your sport of choice. And I am not criticizing because I had to live with those choices. You know what our church did? And I I pray someday we grow enough that we have to. We had a Sunday night service. We ran our high school group at 5 o'clock. We did church at 6.30. And even when our son was gone on Sunday morning, he was in church Sunday night. There is something about God's people gathered together. And when week after week after week we find ourselves not here and we wake up one day and it's been six weeks since I've been in church, that's going to affect you. I also know, I, it was so cool, we had parents who would call, we had a big church in Minnesota, when they were at tournaments, they wanted to know if we had a Saturday or Sunday night service, and so traveling teams would come, and they knew that Grace Church had a Sunday night service, and they had the rules, hey, if we play a tournament on Sunday morning, we're in church somewhere Sunday night. So I don't know how you do this, whether you do your own house church, some substitution, you listen to the sermon on, on, on the website after the fact, but we can't say that Sunday is just any other day, this is God's day. And I'm not legalistic about this. Believe me. But there is something about saying we honor this day because it's a chance to say, God, we need that spiritual refueling. And so maybe we look at our priorities this year and how that plays in. Busyness, fatigue, wrong priorities. So where do families see? Where do families see this love of God? Where do your kids see the love of God? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to suggest that the first way they see it for us men is in our tenderness. You go, are you kidding me? Going soft on me, Erwin? Come on, you got to show your kid to be tough. I can tell you, I was doing more teaching than I ever realized in how I was talking to my wife when my kids were young. I repent of the times that I was short, abrasive, pig-headed, stubborn, but they did see plenty of times when I was tender and kind. We have a goofy little thing. Hey, did I tell you I loved you today? I tell her it all the time. Our kids saw it all the time. So there's this tenderness. Our kids see a clue about God's love when we're tender, gentlemen. I know it flies in the face of culture because we've got to be tough. Touch, second way our kids see the love of God. They feel it. Now, I don't know who does the bed tucking in in your families for you youngins. How many of you still have kids that you tuck into bed? Just raise your hand. 
Look at all these young families. I'm telling you, moms, it's cool. You can do it, but let dad do it. Let him finish. No offense. Just let dad be the closer, okay? Bringing in the lefty from the bullpen. Dad's closing, all right? I am telling you, there is something special about a 250-pound man trying to climb into a crib. (laughs) It's also comical. I'm telling you, some of the sweetest times with my kids was not only when they were young, but that they asked for me to pray with them as they got older. Between you and me, that prayer time happened with my kids well into the high school years. All the high school kids are going, oh, dang, and my dad's climbing in bed with me tonight. This is going to be weird. (laughs) It changed as they got older because my kids were different. My first one was so disciplined. Like by the time she's 12, she's having a quiet time at night. She's journaling. She's got the books. She makes this, you know, little journal thing, and she has prayers to Jesus, and she's just so happy. (laughs) And I'm like... Man, thank goodness she took after her mother. And my son was a little more erratic, scatterbrained, loosely defined. Well, let's just describe it. Here's him. Blow up a balloon and then just let it go. That was him, right? So for him, those prayer times were very different. It started with a long discussion about baseball and football and I remember when he was 11, was Sammy Sosa or Mark McGuire going to win the batting title? And I don't care how you do it, but let the last words on their little ears and in their minds as they're going to sleep is Daddy putting his hands over them saying, Dear Jesus, may my son and my daughter grow to be valiant warriors or young princesses for you. And they're going to remember those prayers. My wife was a very good toucher. She's a mom. They didn't come running to daddy when they were young. They come running to mommy first, right? She did something that I think every parent was such a blessing. Before they left the front door to get on that bus to walk to school, she put her hands on their shoulders and prayed them out the door. Whether I was there or not, she prayed over them every day out the door. They remember that. They remember that. Tenderness, touch, trials. That's another way that our kids see how God fits into your life. How do you bear up under adversity when you've lost a job, when you lost a loved one, when someone who's been disrespectful or gossiping about you, and how did you react, and they listened to you, and how did you respond? And then just because I'm going to add one more, I know there's three T. I'm giving you a fourth T because I saw a Facebook post from Chad that cracked me up yesterday. They see God's love in how you travel with one another. If you watched his Facebook post, I just, I don't know, are you a dummy or are you a road rager? You know, just read his post. But the bottom line, how do you respond just in the going through your life together? How do we do that? So let's move from what to pass on to how do we pass it on? He tells us how to do that. How do we transfer this spiritual dependence to God? We see it in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And these words I'm commanding you, you today shall be on your heart. Principle number one, lead your family consistently. It's got to be on your heart. It's got to be on your mind. You've got to be thinking about it. It's just not kind of like, oh, maybe it'll happen and it will happen. And so it starts with us by thinking very carefully, what is it we want to pass on? 
Let me give you two quotes. Number one, don't be educated beyond your own obedience. Don't be educated beyond your obedience. We got lots of stuff up here. Apply some of it. Let them see that it's, you're applying it. And secondly, self-examination precedes verbal dissemination. Self-examination. Take a look at your life first and then verbally process it with your kids. I can tell you for a fact my kids learn more about Jesus in my failures than in my successes. Me asking for forgiveness when I wasn't the godly man I needed to be told them that it's okay, dad doesn't have to be perfect, and I, no, they didn't use that, well, dad, you're not, very, and they can do that too, so don't take it too far, students. But the bottom line is, they see that we are trying to say, God, what is it that you would have us do here? Now, I just want to make an observation. When you lead your family consistently, it's my definitive observation that you need to have a spouse-centered home, not a child-centered home. And what I mean by that is, the, first of all, Jesus Christ is central, but the next relationship should start with your spouse if you are married. When the kids believe that it's all about them, we send a very wrong message about how family structure should work. So some of you do this. You come home, you have a thing called couch time. Well, before you deal with all the kids, they realize mama gets the first 15 minutes. Kids, talk to the hand. I'm talking to your mom first. Now, that's desperately hard because when I came home and our kids were little, she would do something that somewhat resembles this. Take him. He's yours. He does need to be changed. I could smell him as I drove in. I understood that principle. So other than the diaper change thing, I want our kids to know that the number one priority after Jesus Christ is I want my kids to see that she is pretty important to me. So it it transforms how you discipline. You're mistreating and talking poorly to my wife. She may be your mother, but she's my wife. That ain't going to happen. And so... You want to lead your family consistently. Secondly, you want to train your family systematically. And this little passage, the Shema, verses 7 through 9, lays it out for you. Now look at all the verbs in verses 7 through 9. And you shall teach or impress them digitally to your sons. You'll talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall bind them as a sign. Verse 9, shall write them on the doorposts. And so this idea is, first of all, to train them systematically, there is a teaching component. I'm going to give you four T's. Teach, that's the formal process. It is inescapable. Parents, you are primarily responsible to teach spiritual truth to your kids. Now, let's come back to grace. Every church I've ever spoken, and I can say that, And here's what's going on in your head right now. All you can think about is the woulda, shoulda, couldas of what you didn't do, especially now as you're looking back. Today isn't about beating you up about what you didn't do or what you wish you would have done. But I can tell every young person in this room that your parents look back and there are regrets in their lives at times about what they wish they would have done. And I'm telling you, that when your kids do great spiritually, you take way too much credit. And when they do poorly, you're taking way too much blame. But there is this intentionality to teach them. 
And you single parents, I got to tell you, God bless you about how you are doing that because it's nearly impossible. If I wouldn't have this woman with me, and I don't know, not talking riding shotguns, but many times I'm riding shotgun with her. I mean, she initiated those conversations. I carried them through. She set me up for success because she was prepared even when I wasn't. The bottom line, there's a teaching aspect that has to happen in the home. Now, look at, flip your notes over. What would you teach them? I've just given you some suggestions on the back of your outline. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. According to his bent is how most people will translate that. And so here's a little thing you can do. I did sometimes just saying, what are the things I would teach them that the wisdom of Proverbs teaches about life? So I just gave you a sample of seven things from Proverbs that you should be teaching your kids. Fearing God, managing God's money, telling the truth, being respectful and planning ahead, being generous, carefully selecting friends, and guarding your mind. And so you can get that from the scriptures, and you teach them the scriptures. You teach them the scriptures. Now, the bottom line is, the second part is you talk. That's kind of the informal part. You talk to your family. You teach, and then you talk, all right? And so part of that systematic teaching is there's this teaching which is formal, and there's this talking that's informal. Now, to help us understand that, I put a little chart together. See, and when you shall talk to them, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and you lie down, when you rise up. I put those four words in that little chart. Now, what's the modern-day parallel of those things? What is the modern-day parallel of just sitting in your house? How does spiritual truth get transferred just by sitting in your house? I, I believe there are, there are a couple ways that happens. What, what's the major way we can do it during what time in our homes? During what time? Dinner time. Dinner time or meal time. We always say, by the way, I've asked that a dozen times. I have never heard breakfast. Like, don't talk to me. I'm not a person until after 10 in the morning. So usually dinner's a little better time to talk about that. All right? What else? Meal time. How about another time? You would say during TV time. You go, what? How can you transfer spiritual truth during TV time? By turning it off. Or when you're watching something and it's not really appropriate, is pausing that, not just acting like you didn't just see that, but maybe making that teachable moment and say, hey, what does God's Word say about this subject? Now, that's extremely hard to do if you like to finish a movie, and it makes them go very, very long, all right? And by the way, that talking thing works really great with teenagers when you're talking with them about, because they want to see the movie, and you're going, oh, I'm not so sure, it's rated this, and then you, how do you talk about it when you're sitting at home? Secondly, when you walk by the way. Now, just to illustrate that, I have got my walking stick here. So when we're walking, now, some of you like to hike, right? So I'm going to tell you a great family devotional trip is go over to T.O. and hike Tarantula Hill, sit on that bench overlooking all the Conejo Valley, and have a little devotional time. Now, I'm sure there's easier hikes or other hikes, but while you're walking, uh, Cheryl and I, to our dismay, we're never really great at praying together until uh, about seven years ago. I hate to say it, but here's what happened. We realized this praying in bed thing at night, that is a cure for insomnia, let me tell you, all right? Because, man, we'd just fall asleep. Actually, okay, I would fall asleep. She wouldn't be awake, I would fall asleep. So one of the things we do is we find that we pray best when we're walking, so we have, a one, we have a half hour out, a 45-minute route, and an hour route around our neighborhood, different ways. We get bored, but we talk and we pray. 
Now, those for you who are literalists know I don't actually pray for a full hour, just confession. But here's what does happen. We talk, we pray, we converse, and we find that when we don't have that connection time with each other, we wonder why we get a little irritated with each other and kind of the stresses of everyday life. So walking. Now, for most of us, walking is not the modern-day parallel. What is it? It's what? It's car time, right? Now, just think about this. The best thing that can happen to your car is that the CD player gets broken and there are no iPod extensions. And you have like a no iPhone rule in the car, like you just don't listen to music. When did we, the, we never fixed the radio in that minivan, did we? She learned more about our kids and their friends with a broken radio than you could ever imagine. Because they're just talking away in the car and she's just driving. They kind of forget that mom's more than a chauffeur. She's an FBI agent. And um, <laughs> man, she heard all kinds of things. Plus, the discussions that go on when you're actually talking in the car. When they're young, the best part of the car is if they're cranky, you put them in that car seat and, and they, go, they fall asleep. If they were cranky, put them in the car seats, drive them around. We have a great conversation. As soon as we get home, they wake up. All right. Walk by the way. When you lie down, it's obvious. Bedtime's a perfect time to talk. Perfect time. You know what I realized? I don't know what this group in the front row does or some of you have teenagers I realized early into the high school career that this whole, like, devotions during dinner time just was not working for us, mainly because someone was running in and someone was running out, and I'm not eating tonight, and I've got to go do an algebra thing and whatnot. When I decided that once they were a freshman in high school, we went to the college dorm Bible study model. Anybody who's been in college, when did you do dorm Bible studies in college? What time? Like 10 o'clock. When we moved devotions to 10 o'clock, all of a sudden it became cool. And I, it was a subtle little thing. We just started doing some time in the Word at 10 o'clock at night. Now, this was a little bit of a problem for those. How many of you are early morning people? So you're going, that would never work for me. How many of you are late night people? You're going, this is a great idea. And how many of you have like just two hours of good time in the middle of the day? Yeah. So it may not work for you. But finding that time to spend time with our kids late at night. Then when you rise up, fourth area, when you rise up, what, what are some of the ways that, that the morning is just completely chaos? I'll tell you one thing. Play the right kind of music in the morning. If you're just, she does that so well. Just play the right kind of music that sets the tone for the day when you rise up. Third thing to do, look at verse 8. Tie them or bind them. Be intentional. Now, I'm not saying you literally like post Awana memory verses to your forehead, but if you want to memorize Scripture... Have them on a ring. I have a stack of three-by-five cards with Scripture verses on it. Pastor Scott's nodding. Any of us who's been through Greek in seminary, you had Greek cards, and I transferred it to Scripture memory. I had those cards with me. Um, I think I may have told you this. I don't remember. But when we were dating as high school kids, you're going to think, oh, you are weird and twisted. I didn't take her out for another date until we had memorized two more verses. So we started in James 1. We memorized Colossians chapter 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It was very motivating for me to, motivate, uh, to memorize Scripture because that meant date time. And, um, I don't, and she, was, no, she wasn't like, oh, sorry, you didn't get your verses done. Can't see me. Uh, it wasn't that legalistic, but that was our way of kind of growing together spiritually. Tie them, be intentional. Fourth, tell or write them. And that's not only being intentional, that's being invested. 
And I won't go into the text, but you know, the whole Passover thing in Exodus 13, the blood on the doorpost, it spared the firstborn of all the Israelites. The Egyptians, of course, didn't make it. So representing that whole idea of God's provision and protection. So as we wrap up today, what's the plan for 2014? I've given you some table talk questions for you to think about, but what's the plan? What's the spiritual legacy you want to leave for your family? Number one, focus on the eternal, not just the external. Focus on the eternal, not just the external. Uh, that is so hard in our culture because everything is about appearance and looks and the haves and the have-nots and social positioning and money and size of houses. and It's not really the way I think God intended. What's really ultimately in 2014... I want to start with the eternal question in mind. Now, I'm a huge golfer. And one of my buddies in our life group hit a hole-in-one recently, and we were talking about that. I've never had a hole-in-one. And I, and I love that. I love sports. I love talking sports. I love the fact that I almost won a fancy football. Came in second, loser. Anyway, so I get all that. But I'm thinking in 2014, I did a couple things that I want to do differently. And I want you to hold me accountable to this. I'm saying it. Just don't ask me, though. That doesn't work. Hold me accountable. Don't ever ask me. Um, so I used to get USA Today. We had it for like 12 years. Not only did the price keep going up, but I found myself addicted to the sports page. I go out, get my newspaper. I want to read the sports page. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I want to do something differently this year. I want to be in this book first before I'm in any other book as I start the day. And I want to confess to you, I've been married for 35 years. I've been a pastor for 35 years. It hasn't gotten easier to have a quiet time. I don't, there's no spiritual like, ooh, you're a pastor, so therefore it must come easy for you. You know what comes easy is when I'm studying for a sermon because I have to be in the Word. I want to be in the Word even when I'm not prepping a sermon. I want God to speak to me because this is good for my soul. Now, again, remember my whole mantra today, it's about grace, not guilt. But I get it. It is so hard because there's so many things that compete for your time and you're barely getting three minutes of communication with your spouse about the logistics of just getting through the week and who's picking up who. And really? You left her at church again? Well, feel good. Mary and Joseph did it. You're in good company. It's all good. So the bottom line is let's focus on the eternal, not just the external. My youth pastor said something when I was 16. I wanted to play baseball in the worst way. I was playing baseball. I, was, I, was, I ended up playing college baseball. But he asked me when I was 16, he says, John, what do you want to do with your life? And I was 16. Now think about it. I'm 16. I don't know. I want to play baseball. Now, every kid who's a baseball player, of, and I wasn't great, but I was a starter, and I did pretty well. You know, I had this in back. Maybe I could do something beyond college. Of course, I'm, that's never going to happen. So he didn't just blow my balloon up and, oh, yeah, I'll have you, loser. You're never going to make it. He asked another question. He goes, what's going to last for eternity? And I paused, and I'm thinking, oh, I don't know. He said, there are two things that will last for eternity, the Word of God and people. That's what lasts for eternity. And so when I say, think, focus on the eternal, not just the external, I just keep in mind the Word of God and people. And that's what I've dedicated my last 35 years of my life, pretty much, is to those two things. Number two, 
Spend your time on the things that are truly important. This is not rocket science. Spend the time on the things that are truly important. I have very few regrets in my life about the parenting thing. But here's some things I would have done a little differently. I was at a very large church from the time when my kids were four and one and a half all the way through my four-year-olds. We were there uh, 14 years. Several times I pulled all-nighters at my desk during those 14 years. I didn't, I never made it, I didn't make it home till six in the morning or I got home at two in the morning and I remember one time I was studying and doing something late, I had to get this thing done and what in the world our business administrator was doing there at two in the morning and he snuck up behind me and, and I about wet my pants. It was like, <laughs> and we sat there and go, what are we doing here? It's two in the morning. If I could take that back, I would have been home for dinner would have been over dinner every night. If you can be home for dinner, change it this year. 2014, I'm going to be home for dinner. It's a simple thing. Number two, if I did anything that in terms of spending my time, I would have prayed more and I would planned less. I am the most unbelievable goal setter you have ever seen. My wife's going, what are you doing? I'm doing my goals for 2014. You know, I like to get the plan out there. I like to, you know, get all my ducks in a row. I'm like some of you, I'm just neurotic. I love to scratch things off the to-do list. Oh, it feels so good. You know what's really good? It's a cup of coffee in an unhurried time of solitude on a beautiful day in your backyard you and Jesus alone I would have done more of that friends I get it we want to succeed we want to be driven we want to get it done we want to make a difference we want to make an impact we want to make money we want to do it all and when it's all said and done, you got to decide how do you want to live your life in 2014? Believe me, I am not judging you. Remember, it's about grace, not guilt. I want the inner man strengthened, not just the external performance. And in the end, ultimately, the gospel is Jesus, not us, is the hero of this story. Amen? I want to ask you today, in 2014, is the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately enough for you? Is he enough? You see, nothing plus Jesus in my book equals everything. And so bow your heads. Would you do this with me? Put your hand as an open palm, palm up to the Lord. And if this prayer is true for you, then you just pray quietly with me. Dear Jesus, I want you to take my life. I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christ follower. But Lord, sometimes I'm in the front seat and I don't want to let go of that, 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 that steering wheel. So Lord, as I sing today, may it be a commitment anew that you're the boss.
You're in control. You're number one. There's no close second. And Lord, I pray specifically now for every family here. May you give great joy to every mom and dad and grandma and grandpa in this room and aunt and uncle. That as you wash over them with your love and forgiveness and grace, that you give them renewed strength, renewed vigor to be different in 2014 because you're making the difference. And we give it all to you. Take us today, Lord, as we sing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. There are days to come as every day has gone before. Days of peace and harvest. Days of wrath and Generations dead and gone To babies barely born The children of the living God Are drawn to Canaan shore So fix these words upon your heart Those 
who cast them off.